Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you, no matter where you live, in the United States or elsewhere around the world. But then again, for some of you all who are listening, it could be Saturday morning. Well, I will say this, it is hard to believe that the Olympics are coming to an end. But what I can say is that the biggest miracle is that the Olympics were able to take place. That, to me, uh, was an accomplishment onto itself, and for everyone involved in coordinating a safe Olympic event, or rather, coordinating the Olympics in general to have happened, given that they had to be rescheduled because of the onslaught of the coronavirus pandemic from last year, I take my hats off to all those people. Yes, there may not have been as many people in the stands or really anybody in the stands being able to watch the events, but the fact that the men and women whom participated in these games left nothing on the table and were able to um, compete for not just for for what they um, worked for, but to be able to represent their home uh, countries. You know, I learned not too long ago or rather some time back, it was around the time when my wife and I went to Lake Placid, New York, 11 years ago for our five-year anniversary. For those of you who know uh, Lake Placid, that's where uh, the miracle on ice took place uh, 41 years ago when the United States hockey team, being a group of uh, amateurs, uh, college kids, took on um, the Soviet Union and what were government-sponsored magician players David had slewed Goliath, but it wasn't so much that David had slewed Goliath, but what I learned is that the 1980 Winter Games in Lake Placid, they only had to spend about $20 million on security. And these days, with all that's happened in the world in 20 years since 9-11, just to, host, just to have an Olympics, regardless of city, Talk about billions of dollars in security to ensure that that nothing bad happens. And while, yes, you don't want anything bad to happen, it's just to think how much the world has changed in 40 years just to be able to um, host an Olympic event, or not just an Olympic event, but the Olympics in general, to have to spend billions of dollars just to ensure that nothing goes wrong that tells you something right there, just how much uh, the world has changed in, in a 40-year span. But nonetheless, I'm glad that the Olympics did go on and that, um, and that no one died, that there was not an athlete who died because, from uh, coronavirus or uh, an athlete that could have um, passed away from other unforeseen circumstances. So, I, again, I applaud the people of Tokyo, Japan, who uh, were able to um, make this uh, happen. Uh, they're the real winners, in my opinion. Well, we are discussing, um, once again, signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution by uh, Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diagnes. Well, we talked about uh, Virginia from uh, the previous night's uh, podcast, and our next state that we're going to discuss is on the border. That is, it technically it borders Virginia. It's south of Virginia. 
it's an easy one. It's one of the Carolinas. Well, let me ask you this. Is it North or South Carolina that borders Virginia? The answer is North Carolina. So, I've got a question for you all. I should say a bonus question. It's a two-part one. Did North Carolina send the same number of delegates to Philadelphia like Delaware and Maryland did? How many uh, delegates did both Delaware and Maryland send? Five. So the answer to part one of this bonus question was that North Carolina, like Maryland and Delaware, sent five delegates. It would be interesting to find out, though, if all five signed the Constitution from North Carolina or if some of the five delegates signed. What state, this is part two of the bonus question, what state lies west of North Carolina that was once considered to be North Carolina? And let's keep in mind, folks, that at one time when our 13 uh, colonies were established, of course, they weren't all established at once, but we should definitely keep in mind with Virginia that uh, when the English first arrived into what we now know as present-day Jamestown, they were truly convinced that uh, Virginia went as far west as the Pacific Ocean. But as time went along, and most notably into the 18th century, Virginia's territory stretched as far west as present-day West Virginia, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and to an extent into uh, present-day Kentucky. As for North Carolina, the state that lies west of North Carolina is uh, Tennessee. And what it, parts of Tennessee are close to that um, Tennessee-North Carolina line? How about the Smoky Mountains? You know, places like Sevierville, Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge. Those areas of Tennessee, being the easternmost part of the state, are not far from the Tennessee-North Carolina line. But, you know, North Carolina is a unique state. For one, um, its license plate, its most common license plate uh, theme is first in flight. And what that means is that the Wright brothers were the first uh, to make history, but by doing so in North Carolina in 19, on December 17th, I believe it was, of 1903. But yes, two things come to my mind when I think of North Carolina in terms of scenery. I think of uh, the Outer Banks, and I also think of the mountains in the western part of the state, uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains, uh, most notably with um, Asheville, uh, Boone, uh, but in Asheville, I always think of the Biltmore. And if, for those of you who haven't gone to the Biltmore, I strongly recommend going. Uh, my wife and I went uh, 10 years ago for our six-year anniversary, and we did, um, actually, we, we spent uh, two days at the Biltmore and the, touring the estate. And the second visit was a behind-the-scenes tour of how the Vanderbilts lived. So it's worth uh, checking out. I mean, when you go inside the Biltmore, I mean, even seeing it from the outside, you can't be, you can't help yourself, but uh, by allowing yourself to be in complete awe of just how amazing that grand estate is. Well, we're going to be discussing uh, two delegates in this uh, podcast on North Carolina. Our first delegate we're going to be discussing, his name is uh, William Blount. Some people would say Blunt, others have said Blount. 
And if you're wondering how his last name is spelled, it's B-L-O-U-N-T. When was Mr. William Blount born? He was born on March 26th of 1749. That means he's about six years younger than Thomas Jefferson, two years older than James Madison, the father of our Constitution. Just to give you an example of where his uh, age range would fall in terms of whether he's older than one forefather or younger than another. But William Blount was born into a well-to-do family whose fortunes um, comprised of uh, various, um, what do you call it, of uh, various holdings. Uh, two of them, for example, pertain to agriculture, most notably cotton and tobacco. And it turns out that William was the eldest of his siblings. Besides being a successful uh, farmer, William's father being Jacob Blount, Jacob had a unique knack for uh, what other type of business. Does anybody want to take a guess? I can give you a couple choices. Choice A, was it um, land acquisitions? Or choice B, was it in... Um, was it in uh, being a merchant? How about uh, choice A, land acquisitions? Well, you know, it seems like a lot of our forefathers enjoy uh, engaging in uh, land speculation and uh, land acquisitions. Well, when I think of land acquisitions, it's more than just buying land properties. How about selling? So, um, Many of y'all are wondering, okay, if William's father is very, very uh, successful at um, being involved in the land acquisition business, is it possible that uh, William himself could be successful? Well, we're going to have to find that out uh, here soon. But one thing I can also say about William's father is that he's probably one of those people, in my opinion, who has that golden touch. And what I mean by golden touch is that no matter what he puts his hands on, the results always come back as nothing but pure gold. In other words, he has that Midas touch. You know, Midas was that king, um, Greek mythology, everything he touched, it seemed to turn to, to gold. Just couldn't do anything wrong. To me, that's kind of what William Blount's father is like. You know, he's just got that perfect touch for success. Tragically, though, William's um, mother died when he was only 14 years old, but it was through his father where the art of land acquisition dealings got applied. So, hey, William's got to learn from the best, and why not uh, his father? Well, all of us know the present-day capital of North Carolina. It's Raleigh, isn't that? Am, am I correct? Yes. Well, I've known that for a long time. After all, I know that my wife was originally from North Carolina, and she lived in Raleigh for a period of time. But Raleigh was not always the capital of North Carolina. Does anybody want to take a guess at exactly what North Carolina's capital was when William Blount was growing up as a young man? I'll give you a couple choices. Choice A, Newburn. Choice B, Fayetteville, choice C, Greensboro. The answer is choice A, New Bern. New Bern is located along uh, North Carolina's coast. Uh, 
not far from uh, Havelock and uh, Moorhead City, uh, just south of Greenville and uh, in, in, uh, south of uh, Wilson. But it is located along the coast. So at one time, folks, North Carolina's capital was not located inland. It was located right along the, along the waters. Could it be that uh, New Bern may have been a uh, port city at one time? Perhaps so. Ships coming in and out and goods, you know, being accessible not only to the people who live along those coastal towns, but how about to members of government? Anything is possible when you have your capital right along the coast. Well, by the time William Blount gets to be um, in his 20s, especially in his mid-20s, relations uh, between England and the colonists, or the colonies, a.k.a. Uh, as King George would refer, King George III referred to the colonies as, as his ungrateful subjects in the years after the French and Indian War, but is it fair to say that by the time the 1770s come along, relations between the colonists, or in the colonies rather I should say, between them and England, they're not good. But the ironic thing is that when William Blount was born in 1749, the relations between England and her subjects are actually very good. But in the years after the French and Indian War, after 1763, that's a whole other story. So, would you say right before shots were heard around the world, where do you think the Blount family might have stood? Were they pro-patriot, pro-loyalist, or were they neutral? It was a combination, well, I don't know if I'd say a combination, it was more like not being like true loyalists, but moderates. In other words, they could have swung either way. But after shots are fired, or shots were heard around the world, the family uh, takes a different um, course of direction, and that is they become um, pro-patriot. So William is involved in the Revolutionary War, but he's not involved as a soldier. He actually serves as a regimental uh, paymaster for the 3rd North Carolina Regiment, as well as chief, pa chief paymaster of state forces, along with deputy paymaster general for North Carolina. So it might be fair to say that um, maybe to a degree, uh, William Blount is like an accountant of sorts, or he's like working for, yeah, like a general accounting office by today's standards. Uh, he's basically like the equivalent maybe of being like a number cruncher for his time. In other words, he's overlooking all the financial affairs to, in to ensure that, hey, that the money is being spent where it's supposed to be. By 1780, uh, William Blount becomes more heavily involved with, um, with the American Revolutionary War. But in 1780, where is the war itself being concentrated? Is it still being concentrated up north in uh, Boston and New York City? No. Two years earlier, in 1778, the British, um, after a stalemate in June of that year, basically a draw in late June of 1778 at, in the aftermath of Monmouth uh, Courthouse, New Jersey battle, Britain decides that it's time to rethink its, um, rethink its whole uh, game plan. 
you know, the war up in the north, we haven't been able to uh, deliver any decisive blows to the Patriots. But if we take our energy southward into the Carolinas and Georgia, and then eventually to Virginia, we can find loyalists left and right who will take up arms, not only with us, but with England and crushing the rebels. So 1780 really is a glorious year for Britain in, in the war in the South. It, it really was that way even when it started, but 1780 to me is truly a glorious year. And how is that so? Well, for those of you who were with me when, uh, when we discussed John Ollers, the Swamp Fox, how Francis Marion saved the American Revolution, uh, we should be reminded uh, that in May of 1780, Benjamin Lincoln, rather I should say General Benjamin Lincoln, for the uh, Americans, tried to put up a valiant fight at Charleston, knowing he was outnumbered anywhere from three to 5,000 uh, men. He had just over 5,000 men, which seemed like a lot, and it was, but it turned out to be no match for uh, Sir Henry uh, Clinton's uh, and his men. Benjamin Lincoln was given an, pretty much like an ultimatum. You know, if you surrender, um, you and your men will not um, have to be subjected to taking an oath or be subjected to um, facing some prison time or being sub would not have to face any kind of uh, harsh um, realities. But Benjamin Lincoln decided that, hey, I feel it's, it would be best for me to... Um, defend the city. Well, William Blount is in Charleston, folks. He's helping out General Benjamin Lincoln with all the necessary defense preparations. This was not a one-day battle. It lasted a few weeks, the, the siege of Charleston, and uh, eventually uh, Charleston fell and was in Britain's hands. Not only had Charleston fallen, but the year before in 1779, Savannah, Georgia fell. So now, Britain has a monopoly on Georgia and South Carolina, but the big crushing blow um, came uh, in late 1780, about August of that uh, August of 1780. Blount is the head commissary, or let alone the head officer, to General Horatio Gates, who had a very short-term stint as commander of the Southern Continental Army. And it's a blessing that Horatio Gates' stint didn't last very long because, sadly, at Camden, he uh, was greatly responsible. Not just greatly, he was totally responsible for the whole debacle there. He basically sent three to four regiments of militia up to the front line to take on the British regulars. These militiamen were in no condition to fight. Many of them had marched about 300 to 400 miles coming north from New Jersey uh, and Virginia down south to South Carolina to fight. And I'm not here to gross you all out, but this is a reality. These men didn't have much to eat. They were malnourished. Um, many of them were suffering from dysentery. Uh, not long ago, I saw a program on the uh, Camden debacle where um, many of the men had eaten um, fruit that was not... Um, what you call it was not ripe. It was basically spoiled. And if that wasn't worse enough, folks, there were men who were forced to put hair powder 
to thicken their soup. Again, I'm not here to gross you all out, but what I'm here to tell you are the dark realities of war. And William Blount witnessed this. He didn't fight, but he saw just how inefficient of a leader Horatio Gates was to where once the British came charging at his militiamen with bayonets, they all started running. Well, if you're that disorganized and that, Ill and that unprepared to fight, I guess you wouldn't have known any better but to run. Horatio Gates left in disgrace. He rode on horseback, leaving his whole army in desertion. That was pretty much the end of his uh, career. So, as for um, William Blount, after that debacle that he um, witnessed Horatio Gates um, deal with at Camden, he decides that it's time to uh, do something else. So what all took place in his life between 1778 and 1782? Well, in 1778, he married Mary Granger. In 1780, he left the military to begin a political career back in North Carolina. So by this time, he's in his early 30s. And come 1782, a year after the British surrendered at Yorktown, he gets appointed to serve in the Continental, a.k.a. Confederation Congress. Does he stay in, in the Confederation Congress very long, folks? He doesn't. He decides in 1783, being the same year that the Treaty of Paris took place, which officially ends the American Revolutionary War altogether, come 1783, William returns back to North Carolina where he and his brother John go about working with the North Carolina State Legislature and opening up what? What do you think, remember early on, folks, what I told you about with regards to what William's dad had a knack for? Land acquisitions, buying and selling properties, land properties. What do William and his brother want more than anything else? Westward expansion. That is opening up land territories west of the Appalachian Mountains. You know, didn't the wasn't one of the repercussions in the aftermath of the French and Indian War? Wasn't one of those repercussions um, prohibiting a westward settlement west of the Appalachian Mountains? Yes. And whom were the British protecting west of the Appalachian Mountains? Or at least they were supposedly claiming to protect, but they probably weren't all along. The Indian tribes living on those frontier um, territories west of the Appalachians. So here we are now in the post-Revolutionary War era, and can you blame uh, William and his brother for wanting westward expansion to uh, be a reality? Absolutely not. Uh, now that we've gotten the British removed from those western territories. But there is a hurdle, another hurdle still. In order to really have effective, um, in order to have effective opportunities to open up these land territories west of the Appalachian Mountains, what is, um, what's going to have to be done? Well, you've got Indians there, folks. You know, our relations with the Indians have not always been the best. And even before and after the American Revolutionary War, 
we've still come to the realities that relations have been tense. They may have been nice at times, but they weren't happily ever after all the time. So, for William Blount, he knows that there has to be trading posts established with the Indian tribes. There was one bill passed that became known as the Land Grab Act. And why is the Land Grab Act important? Because it was land that was not confined or held under Indian control. Basically, this is open land for anybody who wants to settle west of the Appalachians. In 1784, William would go about supporting a bill that led to the establishment of a city in Tennessee, a well-known city. Does anybody want to take a guess at what the name of that city was? Was it Knoxville? Was it uh, Gatlinburg? Or was it Nashville? The answer is choice C, Nashville. And Nashville, of course, is the capital of Tennessee. So you have William Blount to thank for supporting a bill that led to establishing that um, city, which is home to Grand Ole Opry. William Blount learned all the ropes with land acquisitions, not only through his dad, but through other people, which, is, which was great. But he was also someone whom played dirty. And what do I mean by playing dirty, folks? Well, doing things that we might think of in today's time as being sleazy, doing things that are shady, risky, or risque, or um, unbecoming. How about, like, for example, taking land that wasn't his? In other words, snookering people out of land that had belonged to them before Western um, settlement was even allowed. You know, for all we know, it's probably safe to say that William Blount could have been involved in um, in deals that uh, cheated Indians out of their land, out of their ancestral lands. But was William Blount someone who was optimistic about the U.S. Constitution when he comes to Philadelphia in 1787? Believe it or not, folks, he isn't. But there is a reason for why he's not optimistic. You know, well, I'll put it this way. He doesn't hate the idea of a constitution. He knows there has to be something better than the Articles of Confederation. But what he's really, really skeptical about is James Madison's Virginia plan. Considering the scope and size of what Madison himself envisioned the Republic ought to be. In other words, you know, here Madison is envisioning three branches of government. He's envisioning all these checks and balances for William Blount, to him, this would be too much, this would be too bureaucratic. William Blount is looking for something that's probably a lot simpler. For all we know, we don't know if he truly supported the New Jersey plan, but it sounds like to me he would have fallen in that category. One vote, regardless of size. But towards the convention's very end, William Blount does come around by supporting the Constitution along with advocating a strong central government as long as it benefited what, folks? Westward expansion. So for William Blount, if the Constitution isn't going to do anything for, in terms of uh, allowing for um, new territories or states to be admitted into the Union, then what's the point of its purpose? in his eyes. So come 1790, President Washington 
a.k.a. George Washington, he appoints William Blount as the territorial governor of the United States south of the Ohio River, which comprised of Tennessee and western North Carolina. He would also go on to become superintendent of Indian Affairs, where he conducted treaties with such tribes like the Creek, Cherokee, Choctaw, and Chickasaw. So, William Blount being superintendent of Indian Affairs, that's almost like the equivalent now of what we know as the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Well, you know, William Blount has played some prominent roles, all right, but is it fair to say that he played a role in getting Tennessee admitted into the Union? Yes. He was the convention's president, which enabled Tennessee to become the 16th state in 1796, along with getting elected as one of the state's first two U.S. senators. Well, when you hold a lot of clout, when you hold a lot of clout, um, which in his case was probably a good thing, anything good can come out of it. Did William Blount encourage Native American tribes to engage in warfare activities within the Spanish territories of Louisiana and Florida? Yes, he did. Was that a good thing? No. And how so? Well, he got caught up in a bad moment, and he wrote a letter, and this is an example of where he said everything that was on that it was on his mind, and he passed along the letter to someone else thinking that it would never get into the wrong hands. Well, it did. This letter was so bad that it ultimately became his undoing to where the United States Senate folks got word of it and charged him with treason and conspiracy. But in the end, all charges got dropped. He was acquitted. William Blount was, in fact, the first political figure to have been impeached in the United States, in the U.S. Senate. Even though he was acquitted, but he was the first to be tried. And even when he returned back home to Tennessee, he still remained popular. Well, he didn't live to be that old he only lived to be 50 years of age, which I guess in that day and time was considered old age. But he is he buried in North Carolina or in Tennessee? He's buried outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. He died on March 21, 1800 at age 50. He lived long enough to see uh, the U.S. Uh, Capitol have two homes, New York City and Philadelphia, but he also knew that one day that capital would be re relocated to where we know today as being Washington, D.C., but he didn't get to live to see the final, um, what do you call it, the final uh, transfer or final, re final relocation of capital. But he died on March 21st, 1800 at age 50. Well, I had mentioned earlier that five uh, delegates from North Carolina went to Philadelphia but did all five sign the U.S. Constitution? No. How many, though, did? Three. The other two delegates left before September for personal reasons. So our second delegate um, is the following that we'll be learning. His name is Richard Dobbs Spate. It's an interesting name, Richard Dobbs Spate. 
His last name is spelt S-P-A-I-G-H-T. He was born on March 25th, 1758 in New Bern, North Carolina. His mother, Margaret Dobbs, was the sister to North Carolina's royal governor, and Richard's father was the secretary to the royal governor. Hey, it does pay to have um, significant connections within the government. Sadly, though, at age eight, Richard's parents, along with his uncle, a.k.a. the royal governor, all died, leaving him orphaned. I can't imagine being eight years of, old, eight years of age, you've lost both your parents and another dear family member, all within a short period of time. And you don't have anybody to go live with. So what happens to this fella? He gets sent overseas to live with relatives in the United Kingdom. You know, I can't imagine being eight, being in his shoes, eight years of age, you've lost your parents and another dear family relative only to have to get sent overseas to live. And he did fine. But who's to say that at eight years of age, getting sent overseas, he would have made it. He would have made it there safely. But somehow he did. I also find it interesting, too, given that he was born in 1758, what war was going on? The French and Indian War. So he was born during the time the French and Indian War was going on. But once, uh, as he gets older, once war with England has broke gets broke gets um, going richard still remains overseas studying at the university of glasgow anybody want to take a guess where the university of glasgow is is it in england ireland or scotland you know all three of those countries make up what's called the united kingdom at that time the university of glasgow is in scotland So it is fair to say that um, Richard Dobbs Spate uh, did not have any uh, true uh, military action during the uh, American Revolutionary War, but prior to 1787, what political background did Spate have? Anybody want to take a guess? All right, I'll give you some answers here. He served as a delegate to the Confederation Congress from 1782 to 1785, which also included serving, actually I'd take it back, after serving in the Confederation Congress from 1782 to 1785, he would go on to serve in the North Carolina House of Commons from 1785 to 1787, which also included serving as House Speaker. Not a bad way to, to uh, rise up into the ranks of, um, of uh, congressional, um, what do you call it, um, titles, or what you call... Um, leadership in the legislative branch. Does he um, lend his voice in Philadelphia come 1787? Yes, he does. What measures do you think Richard Spate proposed? He favored having the president, including all U.S. senators, serve seven years before having to go up for re-election. You know, there have been talks at times where uh, some people 
have said that maybe the presidency should be just one six-year term versus having two four-year terms that a president can serve. But I do find it interesting that uh, Spate had proposed that the president serve seven years before going up for re-election. I think, to me, that would be a long time, and others would have seen it perhaps as an abuse of, um, of not just leadership, but an abuse of, of um, tenure before um, coming up for re-election. I think it's a good idea that a president... Uh, can be up for re-election once every four years. That gives people enough time to real to decide for themselves that hey, you know, after four years, is it worth keeping this person in office, or is it time to uh, vote for someone else instead? Well, despite his uh, best efforts in proposing these ideas, they were um, opposed. But something that Spate did propose was agreed upon by everyone else in attendance. What do you think that would have been? Did it have something to do with um, how House of Representative members got elected or how senators got elected? It had to do with how U.S. senators got elected. Was Spate in favor of having the people elect their senators or did he believe that a higher institution was the proper choice for um, calling upon the election of senators. An institution higher upon, meaning the state legislatures. Dobbs wasn't a big fan of the people. In other words, he felt that if too much power was placed in the hands of everyday people, they wouldn't know what the best decisions were for the greater uh, good of the of the country. In other words, by placing power in the hands of the state legislatures to elect the senators, the state legislatures were the ones that had more knowledge on day-to-day -day affairs that the senators debated on and what the senators um, could bring back home to their own people whom they, repre whom they represented per their uh, respective state. So, Richard Dobbs Spate is credited for proposing that senators get elected by their state legislatures. And this practice, folks, was in play until 108 years ago, 1913, when Congress approved, or I should say ratified, the 17th Amendment, calling on U.S. senators to be directly elected by the American people. So, in other words... It, just think about it, folks. It wasn't up until 1913, just shortly before World War I began, that, that all state legislatures, and at that time, and up until 1913, we only had 48 states in the Union. It wouldn't be for another 46 years until Alaska and Hawaii came along. So at one time, folks, our state legislatures were the ones electing our U.S. senators. And remember, two senators per each state, so hey, the states had the right to, um, the state legislatures had the power to um, elect or um, nominate new senators to represent their states. Well, um, after the U.S. Constitution, um, after the U.S. Constitutional Convention, Spate uh, does return back to North Carolina, 
But what unique honor got bestowed upon Richard in 1792? He became the governor of North Carolina, the first native-born North Carolinian, I should say, to become governor of his state. He oversaw the state's capital get relocated to Raleigh. I also found this uh, to be worth sharing. Spate played a vital role behind the founding of UNC Chapel Hill, which saw him serve as chair to the university's board of trustees while serving as governor. My wife is a huge UNC um, Chapel Hill fan. After all, her dad and brother are both uh, UNC Chapel Hill grads. And uh, you all will get a chuckle out of this. Um, well, for one, I'm a big UVA fan. That is University of Virginia fan. Um, both of my parents and one of my sisters went there, so I've grown up with the University of Virginia all my life. There is a, a five-star hotel in Richmond, Virginia, and I'm sure most of you probably know about it. It's called the Jefferson. It's been around since 1895. I took my, um, at the time she was my fiance, and I took her to the Jefferson, uh, and that's where I proposed to her. And when we um, came back uh, later that evening to uh, my wife's uh, parents' home, her dad says to me, Kirk, the only reason probably for why you took Amanda to the Jefferson was so that she could get TJ's blessing because he knew how much I enjoyed learning about Thomas Jefferson and reading about him. So that's a good little uh, joke there um, for those of you who, um, you know, find that uh, hilarious and all, uh, you know, a little humor, but hey, we all need some humor, especially in this day and age with all that's going on in the world. But nonetheless, um, whenever you think of UNC Chapel Hill, you can thank Richard Dobbs Spate for being one of the um, leading founders of that uh, fine institution, um, which opened its doors, I believe, around 1789, about a good 30-some years before the University of Virginia um, opened its doors to the first um, group of students come 1825, uh, the, the year before Thomas Jefferson passed away. Well, you know, we've learned already that uh, the states that we've discussed, being New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, um, Virginia, we've all learned that uh, those states either ratified the Constitution in 1787 or uh, 1788. Did North Carolina ratify the Constitution in 1787 or 1788? Believe it or not, folks, the answer is no. Neither year. Why not? Well, North Carolina did not ratify the Constitution early on, as the document itself did not have a Bill of Rights. But North Carolina decided, though, that come no on November 21st of 1789, this North Carolina became the 12th state to end up uh, ratifying the Constitution. So, you know, the Bill of Rights don't come into play until about 1791, but that's not to say that they weren't, were already, it's, it's not to say that they weren't already being debated on during the first Congress, but it's like what uh, Benjamin Franklin said, it may not be the perfect document, but it's the best we, but it's the best we could, but it's the best that we could come up with. In other words, it may not have had a Bill of Rights right away because there were delegates who wanted that, 
But we also should keep in mind that the longer that the delegates stayed in Philadelphia to debate the uh, document, especially with having Bill of Rights put into play, how long exactly would that have taken? Would that have taken another two to three months just to have come up with a set of Bill of Rights? So basically, for men like James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, they probably told many of the other delegates, hey, look, we'll try to find a way to get in the Bill of Rights, but right now we've got to get back home to our respective states, and we need to um, present this document to the delegates at Charles conventions as well as to the people. And then once ratification takes place at your own home state, then we can start talking about the next things, and that is adding a Bill of Rights. You know, there, it's a process, folks. Not everything can happen right away. But luckily, North Carolina did have the decency to um, put aside its um, personal interests and go about ratifying this document. Sacred document, that is. Did Richard Dobbs Spate die from natural causes? I know that sounds like an odd question for me to be asking. I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, why, why, does this, why does that question matter? Well, we all have to keep in mind that we don't always get to choose how we wish to go. You know, sometimes you hear st tragic stories about how people pass away who've been taken way too early. Uh, in other words, they were still in the prime of their lives, and sadly they died unexpectedly in ways that um, they wish not to have gone but yet had no control. So the answer is uh, no, Richard Dobbs Spate did not die from natural causes. In other words, he, um, he didn't um, die peacefully. He didn't die peacefully in his sleep. His death was a result from a dueling engagement with a political opponent whom disliked Spate above and beyond. Isn't dueling, folks, a dangerous uh, activity? It is. You don't hear much about it now in today's time, but dueling itself goes as far back as the Middle Ages, a.k.a. medieval times. And in colonial days, it was commonly practiced amongst families of high status. You know, it would be easy to think in colonial times that men who had differences could learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. For the most part, they were, but there were men who went to extremes, and by when what I mean by extremes, they would um, feel that it was it would be necessary to take matters into their own hands by engaging in um, dueling to resolve a problem. Dueling is something that, um, in my opinion, separated boys from men. These engagements were um, ones that um, would go about keeping a man's honor and image intact. If someone challenged you to show up to duel them, would you have shown up? Yes, you better have shown up. What would have happened if you had not shown up? You would have been frowned upon. You would have been laughed at. You would have been scoffed. 
You would have been ridiculed. People would have called you names like wimp, coward, chicken. They basically would have felt that you had not done your duty by being manly enough to have just shown up. So let's say you had shown up. You took out your pistol. But let's say you opened up your pistol and threw your bullets to the ground. Would you have still been frowned upon? No. Do you know why? For starters, you showed up. But by throwing, but by dislodging your pistol and dropping your bullets to the ground, what it meant was that you were just simply not ready to um, engage in um, lethal activity that would have resulted in um, shooting someone and not just shooting the opponent, but by perhaps killing them. So by showing up and dislodging your pistol, but dropping the bullets to the ground simply meant that, hey, at least you showed up, but today was just not your day. So that would have been better than not showing up at all. Richard, um, sadly for Richard Dobbs Spate, he died, as I said earlier, he died from a dueling engagement. And his uh, wound was, and his uh, wounds were very severe to where he died um, instantly. Richard Dobbs Spate, along with another man named Alexander Hamilton, whom we discussed earlier, who was from New York, are the only two Constitution signers whom died by violence, a.k.a. dueling. Whereas Alexander Hamilton was shot by Aaron Burr in 1804, Richard Dobbs Spate died September 6, 1802, at age 44. That's pretty young in my, in my books. Some could say, you know, living to be 44 may have been old, given that most people didn't make it past the age of 20 or 25, but who's to say that had Richard Dobbs Spate not died by means of dueling, he probably could have lived maybe a little bit longer. We, we don't know. But let's just uh, be reminded of the fact there again, folks, that people don't always, people back then did not always get to choose how they wished to go, just like we don't have that choice today. But more often than not, when people did, could not resolve their political differences peacefully, they turned to dueling. And that was the way to resolve a problem. It's scary to think that that's, that was the kind of violence that people preferred, but hey, if you didn't think anything of it, you didn't know any better. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again uh, next time with you all. And as always, thank you for listening. You all are great listeners and uh, continue to, um, to learn, continue to be challenged, continue to spread the word to those who want to learn more about history. Uh, come to Anchor. As I've said it before, I'd say it again, it's free. The opportunities are limitless. The results go beyond the sky's ceiling. So thank you again and have a great weekend and stay safe.